Good morning. This morning we're back in 1st John and we're going to do 1st John chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. And I'll read the passages from the ESV. You can follow along in whatever translation you're using. It says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for sharing the truth with us through your word. May our hearts attend to what you've said, and may we believe what you've said, and may we be changed by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see from my title, this old and new commandment is the command to love. Let's go to the very first part of verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. In addressing the command of God to love God and others, John begins by calling the church beloved. Christians are not just people who showed up because they wanted to have a religion. We're just not a group of strangers with some common ideas that we'd like to pursue. Christians are people who know the love of God through the cross and through the gospel. And Christians love God and love one another and are compassionate toward other people. That this is the command to love is clear. Christians know that they have been loved by God. How do we know that? Because we know that God has forgiven our sins. We know that God really did send Jesus who died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. We have the love of God broadcast in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is the very fundamental essence of Christianity. Anyone who's been converted knows immediately that God has showed them great love and mercy. You just know that. And you're part of the family of God. And we will be different. We'll change. We'll walk as he walked, as we saw in verse 6. We believe that our master loves, that he loved the whole world and that we've been recipients of his love, and we want to be like Christ. 
Jesus is the prophet like Moses, who's God's lawgiver. We're under the law of Christ. Moses taught love. It says in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now this was spoken to people who lived in an honor-shame society in which revenge killings went on and on and on because they never came to an end. Because whoever, a son or, or cousin or father or whoever was killed by someone because of revenge will blame the person that did it and exact revenge on them. And it perpetuates itself. This honor, shame, revenge society is still alive and well in the Middle East, is it not? And it leads to endless killing and endless war. But even in that setting, God, through Moses, said, don't take vengeance. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you see the brilliance and beauty and quality of God's love changing a people so that they're different. I've said many times that Moses is the founder of Western civilization because of Deuteronomy 17 and other places. We're not going to be like the people all around us and just kill each other. So we are going to keep this command to love. Now remember, they're called beloved. It says beloved is agapetos in the Greek, which is based on agapao, to love, from agape, a word you probably heard, a Greek word used in the New Testament for love. It's a strong word. It's a stronger word than just saying dear friends, philo. It is a selfless, compassionate love that cares for the well-being of the other. And I'm going to quote here John 15 and verses 9 and 10. You know, John, who wrote John in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, Revelation, is known as the love apostle because he refers to it so much. And there's good reason for saying that. Even in the Gospel of John, when John refers to himself, he humbly says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. His identity was that he'd been loved by the Lord Jesus. He used that as his self-designation. And he wrote in John 15, 9 and 10 about what Jesus said, just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I'm going to talk about something today to help us deal with what we face out there in the world as Christians. And one of these 
important truths that we learn that we need to know is that being loving and affirming that there are commandments are not antithetical to each other. We're told by the world that if you're going to be loving, then you have to be in favor of everything. You can't have any moral law. You can't have any firm beliefs. You just have to let everything happen. But that's not how the New Testament sees it. Notice it says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Meaning, just as Moses was the lawgiver God used in the Old Covenant, Jesus, as was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, speaks God's binding law. So to know that he loves us, to know the love of Jesus, to know the love of God through Jesus, also means I embrace the teachings of Jesus. And what he commands is what I want to be like. I'm not claiming perfection, but he teaches us the truth. And it's all valid, and it's all important. The Bible does not set love up against moral law, but love epitomizes it. It's not opposed to moral law. It epitomizes it. Love, under the new covenant, gives us a way to the forgiveness of sins. Love leads, if you believe it biblically, to eternal life. Love saves from perishing. As we'll see at the end here of this sermon, I'll talk about John 316. We've already seen earlier in 1 John 2 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we've talked about that. It's all important. But love summarizes the law. Love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Second part of 1 John 2, 7. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. We've heard the word. We've been taught by God. And this old commandment is the word proclaimed by Christ and his apostles. That's grounded in what God already said in Moses to love God and others. So the word is very important. See, those who would say, well, you can't really know what anybody says. It's all relative. They even have the extreme of conceptual relativism. I ran across that when I was researching for one of the books I wrote. What's that? Well, you're telling me, oh, the lights are on on your car out in the parking lot. You have in your mind, car, parking lot, lights on, not off. Now, if you are really a conceptual relativist, what you think is whatever is in this other person's mind that they say with words means something totally different to me. I can't know what that is because you're in your own little conceptual world. I'm in mine, 
and we're all in our own la-la land. So I refused that idea. So if you really believed that, you'd have a lot of dead batteries. Oh, I wonder what he meant by that. No, we go, how do we turn our lights off? See, the absurdity saying that this word that we heard can't really mean the same thing to multiple different people is really amazing absurdity. Because the ones who teach it write books about it. Eric and I ran into that in seminary. And they expect you understand their book. So if what they say is true, then their book means nothing. And we can't know what they mean. So let's reject that and say that this commandment that we heard through the word is valid, it's understandable, it's binding, and it gives us moral direction. Love is this proclamation that goes with the gospel. Later, we'll look at John 3.16. Let's go to John 17.24, and I want to talk about another important category to help us understand this command to love. John 17.24. John, by the way, wrote the gospel and the epistle. So this is what we know already from John's gospel. Father, this is Jesus praying, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, this is a very profound theological statement Jesus is making. Agape love is part of the very nature of the triune God of the Bible. God is love. So from all eternity, agape existed in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love. Their love is relational. Their love is part of the very nature of God. All three members of the Trinity are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And love characterizes God, amongst other things, that are his attributes. This particular attribute I'm calling communicable. What do we mean by that? Well, when we say God is omniscient, that's not something we can share. We can have knowledge, but we can't be omniscient. When we say God is omnipresent, that's not something we can share. We're confined to space and time and so on and so forth. Those are incommunicable. Communicable are things that are true in their perfection, in their ultimate essence, in God. We know love because we can know God. God is love. We'll see this as we go through First John. This can be communicated so that when we come to Jesus Christ, who demonstrated love, 
as I will show you later, in the cross and through the cross, we can be loving because not in his ultimate perfection, it's only true about God, but in a sense of being communicated, we can be loving with love that's like God. We can be like him in a sense of being loving. That's what we mean by that. Now notice that this is about his glory and the love was from before the foundation of the world. I say something here on my slide. The novel is not usually good in Christian theology. Why am I saying that? Well, in Acts 17, 21, Paul was at Mars Hill and here are the Athenian philosophers. And it says, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. See, people want something new in theology to their own peril. I remember one time I knew one of my professors fairly well. We had worked together on apologetics before I became a seminary student. And he was telling us about going to this evangelical theological society and some of the really far out ideas presented there. And so I said to this professor, why is all this crazy stuff taught at these conferences with these PhD people that are say they're evangelical? And here's what he said. They know that if you just teach Christian theology that Christians always have believed, you'll never be published. Okay? If you just say, God is love and we need to love one another. Here's my article. What? But if you say, oh, there's a new perspective on Paul and justification isn't really a person being justified before God. It's sort of a group thing. And then this is my new perspective. Oh, yes, books and seminars, and you're the keynote speaker. And we've become like the Athenians. Let's tell something new. Well, dear saints, I hope you bear with me. I'm going to tell you something old. God is love. God loved us. Love existed agape love from all eternity in the Trinity. And we can love one another. And we can know we're loved by God. And we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's it. John wasn't embarrassed to teach something old. Neither should we be. 1 John 2, 8a, again from the ESV. At the same time, that is, as it being old, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. So by being old, doesn't mean it can't also be new. The love of God as manifested in the person of Jesus Christ on the scene of history in Galilee 
in Israel and was manifested to people, real people, who saw and heard, touched and handled, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. This is love shown in a powerful and new way, not at all to say anything was deficient in the old, but this is greater. This is more profound. It's realized in Jesus Christ. It's central to the gospel. I'm going to mention here 1 John 3.16, a little preview for some later sermon. But if you know John 3.16, I recommend that you also know 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, it says, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. That's what makes this new. The unique self-giving of Jesus Christ to die for sins, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. He laid down his life for us. God showed us decisively through the self-giving of Jesus what his agape love is really all about. Jesus, by his own obedience, fulfilled the law. The summation of that is love. Jesus makes it possible for the believer to inherit a new quality, eternal life, and fulfill the law of selfless Christ-like love. I got those ideas from a Dr. Smalley commentary, and I affirm that those are accurate and true. Jesus fulfilled the law, which is summarized by the command to love. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. The last part of 1 John 2 and verse 8. Because the darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. We're introducing another theme that's central to John. It's very important, and we'll be seeing it more in 1 John. In fact, next week I'm going to preach about the difference between light and darkness. Okay? So we see this love of God revealed in Christ because at the incarnation, Christ coming into this world demonstrates that darkness is passing away. Darkness is mentioned six times in 1 John, eight in John. Let me just quote John. John 8, 12, you want to jot that down. John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am, there's that saying, equating himself with Yahweh, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Light and darkness are creation themes. Remember Genesis 1? Darkness, 
is dispelled when God says, let there be light. So Jesus came as light into the world. It says in John 1, 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. doesn't mean every man is saved, but that with the coming of Christ, light, that is God's light, comes into the world and things are never really the same. There's saving grace for those who believe, common grace for everybody else. Common meaning you are able to live on this world in a beneficial way because God delays the execution of his wrath and his judgment, though he will indeed bring it. I want to give you some implications and applications. The command to love is foundational to Christian ethics. This is very, very important. If we didn't know anything about love, we didn't know about God being love, we didn't know about loving God and loving neighbor, we wouldn't have a good groundwork for Christian ethics because the Bible in the Old and New Testament says that this command to love summarizes everything else. Number two, Christ's love is expressed in the church through loving one another. Number three, Christian love is selfless, not self-seeking. And number four, God's love is defined by the giving of his son. I have it. If you have the outlines, I have here Matthew 22, 36 through 37. We want to talk about love and Christian ethics. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The first one, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This doesn't mean we anatomically divide up the person to figure out which part is loving. It means the whole person. Heart, mind, and soul means the whole person. The whole inner self, our being as a soul created by God who lives here in the bodies that he's given us that we are to love the Lord our God wholeheartedly we're to be devoted to God. And this devotion is based on who Christ is, what he's said, what he's done, and what's been revealed to us as true through the scripture. Oh, I got to tell you about an email I got yesterday about devotion, because this verse is about devotion to God. Okay, here's the email. Oh, I sent your article on 
Jesus calling to my friend. And here's what she replied to me. And then the reply was, well, yeah, this is kind of strict. I don't know if I have to decide if everything was really from Jesus. I just read this for devotions. Now let's unpack that. This might be not Jesus, but some lying spirit, but it's okay because I'm devoted. How is God pleased if we're devoted through the words of a lying spirit? How is God pleased if we're devoted by falsehood and error? How is God pleased if we're devoted because somebody put words in the mouth of Jesus that Jesus never said? Dear ones, we can't take the idea of devotion and divorce it from God's self-revelation in Christ. The Christ of that devotional book says, he says, I want my people to have awareness of presence. Awareness of presence is Eckhart Tolle, the New Age panentheist, who is a blasphemer. And Jesus never said, well, I want you to have awareness of presence. I think there's something here. No, he wants us to believe the truth of who he is and what he did. He came into this world, the self-existent one who created the universe out of nothing and who was born of a virgin and who taught the truth and lived the truth and died for sins and was bodily raised from the dead bodily ascended in heaven. This one never said, okay, now you just need awareness. No, we need to believe the truth and believe the promises of God. So I get this email, and I think, how many other people think devotions don't need to be true? You tell me this. If the truth sets you free, what do lies do? The Bible tells us they ensnare us. They confuse us. They lead us astray. Is that how we devote ourselves to God? Through lies? No. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. To know how that can be done, we need to know who God is. There are millions of pagans devoted to false religion who will do anything for their false religion. They'll die for their false religion. They'll destroy people for their false religion. They'll spend the rest of their life going around trying to get people to join the Watchtower Society for false religion. You can't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind without knowing who he is, and you can't know him without knowing Christ. That's what John is telling us. Yes, we must love God. We need to know Christ. And God has our best interests in mind. Human sentimentality is not sufficient. It'll lead us astray. How many times have you heard someone say, Oh, the good Lord wouldn't 
do that. The good Lord wouldn't want this. And then they imagine what the good Lord might think, and through their own sentimentality and religious ideas, decide on what's moral and what's ethical. No, we don't need to do that, and we shouldn't do it. Love is defined biblically by the creator of the universe who sent his son into the world to demonstrate love. Now, as Christians, recipients of the glorious, powerful, amazing love of God who mercifully received us sinners to himself, we're called to love one another. A new commandment I give to you, it says in John 13, 34, and 35, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One thing we know for sure, the love that we have as Christians for one another is something we need, something that all of us need, something that's fundamental to our lives as Christians, and something that will help us survive in this wicked world that hates all of us. Oh, yes, the world hates us. The world can't figure out what's wrong. Why do you think like you do? Well, because you know Christ. Why do you live like you do? Because you know Christ. Why don't you fit in? Because I know Christ. Why don't you just get in line? We'll tell you how to think. No, I can't do that because I love Christ. The world tells us that we can't be loving. There's no way we're loving. Let me tell you how that's expressed. We support a ministry and and work with a pro-life ministry that believes in the sanctity of life. Loving Christian people who help mothers keep their babies, have their needs met, find the love of God, find the provisions they need, and walk them all, all through this. The world says, well, if you don't believe that abortion is right, you're a hateful person. Why are you so full of hate? And I look at these people who lay down their lives to help mothers who give, who care, who love. And you're telling me they're full of hate because they believe that unborn babies are created in the image of God and have lives that need to be protected, that makes us hateful? Dear ones, we cannot allow the world to define things for us. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our life for one another. We should care not only for one another as Christians, but for the weak and the helpless like the unborn babies. It should mean something to us.
enough to take action. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Don't be shocked. We need to love one another. Before I was converted, I had a lot of hate in my heart. I got along well with the other haters who hated Christians. But when I met Christ and I went to church with some people who loved him, you wouldn't have had to preach this sermon to me for very long. I knew that these people loved one another. They didn't fit in with the rest of the world, but they loved one another and they loved God and they cared about people and they cared about me. God's work and word lead to mutual love. 1 John 4, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians. Oh, I'm supposed to say 1 Thessalonians. Imagine that, I got a theological degree and I didn't get it the way they say. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. So that's what we do. Christian love is selfless and not self-seeking. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Eric was talking about walk, what it means. It means your behavior, your lifestyle, parapateo, walk around. It's just the way you are. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. As I said before, love is a communicable attribute of God. He laid down his life for us. If you want to turn to this, it would be a good verse for you to never forget. 2 Corinthians 5.15. That'll bring us right to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Wow. Let's just break that down a little bit or open it up, I, I should say. He died for all. Christ died for sins. Once for all, the just for the unjust. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves. What does that mean? Every one of us, before we came to Christ, was living for self. That is the world. Live for self. Have you heard people say, this is their version of an ethic? or a moral law. To thine own self be true. You just do what you feel like you got to do, and it's the job of everybody else to like it. So I'm my own lawgiver. I'm a law to myself. God's not going to tell me anything. I'm not going to listen to anything he says. I'm not going to listen to the Bible. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's not what it says here. 
He died for all that we may no longer live for ourselves or to themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. God's love was proven by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as John said, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Today, if you hear this sermon, are you living for yourself or are you living for Christ? We know that we'll love ourselves, but what we don't know is that we'll love God and others. That takes a work of grace. I already told you who Jesus is and what he did. We need him so that we might avert God's wrath against sin. God is calling each of us to turn from living for self and turn to Christ to live for him. Today, are you willing to live for Christ? Truly know and express the love of God. One last verse. I think it's one you heard before. Anybody heard this one? Well, here it is. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, this verse seems to be universally popular, but there's a couple of implications. I have them on the slide that we can't neglect if we understand the verse and we want to truly know what God said. Number one, we're in danger of perishing. I remember watching a debate between Dr. Walter Martin and a famous liberal I mean, he was really liberal. And Dr. Martin said, oh, I noticed, uh, in fact, the guy's name was Bishop Spung. You might have heard of him. Oh, when we were doing our sound check, I noticed you quoted uh, John 3.16, Bishop. I'm going to ask you a question. Would you affirm that anyone is actually in danger of perishing? I'm glad you like John 3.16, but I want you to answer that question. Here's the bishop. Oh, well, uh, uh, backpedaling and turning red. Well, see, the bishop is a universalist, doesn't believe anybody's perishing. So, there's the problem. Liberalism says, oh, we believe God is love, but we don't believe anybody will ever perish. But if there's no danger of perishing, this idea of being rescued and shown love is vacuous. Our hearts are filled with love because we know we're rescued. But if nobody can perish, nobody can be rescued. If nobody can be rescued, nobody can really know love. So we need to realize that that if if we believe in him, trust in him, turn to him, we will be rescued from perishing. There's an old song we sang 
in this little church that I first went to just before I went off to Bible college. And it was called Rescue the Perishing. Remember that? Rescue the Perishing. Well, nowadays, oh, nobody's going to perish. That's just something these Christians made up. No, this is what God said through Christ. And John was his apostle. God is love. Secondly, we must believe in Christ. Not just the Christ consciousness, the Christ spirit, or that the whole universe is Christ, but we believe in the Christ revealed in the Bible, the creator, the Jewish Messiah, the righteous one, the one who perfectly obeyed God's law that none of us could do, the one who bore God's wrath against our sin, the one who shed his blood, the one who died and was raised on the third day, the one who bodily ascended into heaven, who's coming again to bring salvation to those who await him, judgment on those who are his enemies. We must believe in Christ to know his love and for John 3, 16 to mean anything. We need to know we were perishing. We need to believe in him. And we need to know now that I believe in him, I'm not perishing. I'm forgiven. I'm alive. I'm new. Life will never be the same. And oh, I love these Christians. Even though sometimes they're, you know, need a little help. We all do. But we help one another and love one another. My dear friends and fellow believers, let us know the love of God so we might love him, love one another, and indeed be sent forth to rescue the perishing. Let us pray. Thank you, dear Father, for sending us your Son in revealing your agape love. May we be loving people who love those around us, who especially love one another, and who uh, go forth with the gospel on our lips. Help us, Lord, and we thank you for what you've done for us unworthy sinners. Thank, thank you for your love and kindness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.